4: Brought to you by State Farm. Like a
1: good neighbor, State Farm is there.
5: When was the last time your pet was excited about mealtime? Sure, they're always happy to eat. But I mean, tail wagging, jumping up and down excited. Fresh Pet brings that joy daily to thousands of pet parents. It's simple. Fresh Pet uses only whole ingredients, gently steamed, cooked without preservatives, and refrigerated, like meat should be. Look for Fresh Pet in the fridge on the pet aisle or at freshpet.com
0: for home delivery options. Make meals exciting again. Fresh Pet, we're picky eater approved. During the month of April, shop the buy one, get one 50% off personal care sale happening now in the health and beauty aisles at Safeway. Shop select products like Dove Deep Moisture Gel Hand Wash, Tresemme Rich Moisture Shampoo with Vitamin E, simple kind-to-skin facial cleansing wipes, or Nexus Color Insure Conditioner Salon Hair Care, and get them buy one, get one 50% off at Safeway. Visit Safeway.com or head into your local Safeway store for more great deals in the health and beauty aisles.
6: We joined the UNEST community when our twins were just four years old.
7: We became part of the UNEST community for our daughter, and she's not due for six months.
2: Join over 600,000 parents and children that have registered with UNEST by downloading the app today. UNEST puts smart investing tools right in the palm of your hand. With flexible accounts that can be used for college tuition, a first car, and more. Download the UNEST app from the App Store or Google Play Store. See terms and conditions at unest.co.
8: Forgotten is a production of iHeartMedia and Unusual Productions.
3: Before we start, this podcast contains accounts which some listeners will find disturbing, but without them, the story can't be fully understood. Please take care while listening.
8: Previously on Forgotten.
2: Our speculation was that when you don't want a crime to be solved, it's because the resolution of it is going to be extremely either embarrassing to somebody in power or it's going to come back to you.
9: The thing is, the people who did this, they have power to remain uh, free, to not be investigated. So
10: there's money and power behind these murders, I believe.
11: They
7: said that the emblematic case of Sagrario has been solved. That the murderer was in jail
8: already and all.
7: I've always said the opposite, that the authors of the crime are still
11: free.
8: For almost 30 years, young women have been murdered with brutality and impunity in Juarez. During that time, FBI agents, forensics experts and journalists have corroborated multiple lines of investigation. But in the absence of a functioning justice system, there can be no definitive answers. For a podcast listener, and certainly a podcast maker, this lack of resolution is frustrating. But for the relatives of the victims, it is a never-ending trauma. It was in this context that Paula Flores and several other families created a protest group. It was called... Voices Without
11: Echo.
7: Voces Cineco grabbed our attention because when girls disappear, when they ask for help, no one hears them. No one knows anything, no one hears anything. We posted flyers with strong messages. We want our daughter's assassins and things like that. If girls disappeared, we also helped to put up missing posters. We began to fight as a group with Voces Cineco.
8: After Sagrario went missing, Paula took matters into her own hands. She led the initial search, and when Sagrario wasn't found, she appealed to the state attorney general for a real investigation. Finally, she interviewed the prime suspect herself. But Paula was never able to unmask the people she called the authors of the crime, and the flies and posters began to feel like a temporary response to an entrenched problem. So the group including Paola's daughter, Guille, decided to call out the femicides with a more durable symbol.
7: While doing all that, on one occasion, Guille thought, why not have a protest, but a permanent one? She thought of a black cross with a pink background as a symbol for the girls, the pink background representing the women and the black cross for the mourning of their loss. In March 1999, we painted the first cross,
8: those crosses are now unmissable, painted on lampposts all over Juarez. They are themselves an echo of the missing women that reverberates around the city. And Paula told us there was one place in particular she felt that it was important to paint one, on the city jail, which, as far as she's concerned, has never housed the people responsible for Sagrario's murder.
7: When I painted that cross, I had to fight with a police officer who wouldn't let me. He said no, that I couldn't paint it there. Are you crazy? I said, yes, maybe I am. It's clear that you haven't had a daughter of yours murdered. That gives me the right to paint this cross here because you haven't done anything.
8: The crosses in Juarez are a constant reminder that the authorities have failed to stop and solve the femicides or hold the killers to account. They hint at the corruption and complicity that mark this story, even if they don't say it out loud. And as a result, the crosses aren't popular with the city's officials. When Pope Francis visited Juarez in 2016, the government painted over several of the crosses along his planned route. But the mothers do not permit the symbols to be erased or their daughters to be forgotten. Each year, Paola goes out to repaint faded crosses in memory of Sagrario.
7: Personally, what I would do was, on April 16th, the date of her disappearance, I'd go and retouch them, and I'd invite people to support us. For me, it's to keep denouncing my daughter's case, the injustice she suffered. I think that in some way it keeps her memory alive.
8: When I hear Paula speaking, I can't help thinking about the word metido. In Juarez, it's often used to explain how the drug cartel gets people complicit in small ways, and then never lets them go. But it was increasingly clear that these murders make unexpected people metido, the journalists who can't put the story down, and especially the families who never get closure. And the line between healthy remembrance and more problematic compulsion to repeat can vanish in the sand. So, how did Sagrario's death affect the rest of the Flores family? And who, ultimately, is responsible for her murder? I'm Osvaloshin.
3: And I'm Monica Ortiz Uribe.
8: This is Forgotten
3: The Women of Juarez. Voy a crear un canto para poder existir
6: Para mover la tierra, los hombres y sobrevivir Yo no nada
8: I've heard so many theories, Monica, about who's killing the women in Juarez, from one or more serial killers to La Lina, the corrupt cops, the cartel, even powerful industrialists. And yet, none of these people were ever prosecuted. And the crimes have been going on for 30 years. How does this all fit together for you?
3: As we've been going along in this series, we've presented these possibilities individually. We have experts and investigators attesting to the involvement of serial killers, drug cartels, empresarios. But it's important to note that the Juarez femicides also include victims of domestic violence. Their killers were likely intimate partners who covered up their own crime by making it look like another serial sexual murder. Other women were themselves involved in the drug trade or had a connection to someone who was.
8: That said, you've also told me that the situation hasn't been stable or constant for 30 years. And even if the murders have the same fundamental drivers... They're most likely committed by different people over time. How do you explain how the femicides in Juarez have changed since the 90s?
3: The trajectory of femicide in Juarez is that it's come in waves over the last 30 years beginning in the early 1990s was one strong wave. In the early 2000s came a second strong wave, the apex of which was the cotton field murders. And then in the later 2000s, beginning in 2008, you see a third wave of femicide come on. And so by then, Diana had stopped going to Juarez and Alfredo Corchado was mostly in Mexico City. And I was just beginning to test my wings as a radio reporter as this drug war was raging.
8: In these waves, the first one in the early 90s that culminated with those mass graves being discovered in 1995 and 1996, the second being in the early 2000s, which is when Lily Alejandra disappeared and which culminated in the discovery of the mass grave at the cotton field, Tell me about this third wave and your reporting on it.
3: I'll never forget the moment when I got the first tip that something was happening to women in Juarez yet again. It was December 2008. I was at a protest of doctors in Juarez near the university. And as I was turning to leave... Some college students walked up to me and handed me a missing persons flyer. And on that flyer was the black and white photo of a young woman. She had dark curly hair and a soft smile. I asked when she went missing. It had been just 12 days. I just remember this sinking feeling in my gut thinking, oh, no, not again. And from that moment on, more women continued to go missing in just a short amount of time. Many were last seen in downtown Juarez. In other words, the same pattern we'd seen before. So that's when I stepped in and started reporting.
8: And once again these disappearances culminated in a mass grave being discovered what happened there
3: fast forward to late 2011 a rancher is on his horse going to check on his land out in the rugged mountainous desert on the outskirts of juarez and they're riding along and all of a sudden the horse stops and kind of seems spooked and the rancher looks down and sees some bone fragments He gets off his horse, takes a closer look, and realizes he's found a clandestine graveyard. He gets back to his ranch, calls the police, and it turns out that this was a graveyard of women's bones, 11 in all. Many of these women were women whose missing flyers were posted all over downtown, some whose mothers I interviewed, Including the mother of a 17 year old girl named Lupita Perez Montes. I had gone to interview her mom, Susana Montes, just 16 days after Lupita went missing. Susana showed me her daughter's room. All her things were there, her backpack, her clothes. Lupita was last seen downtown, and Susana had been going there almost daily, asking around, posting missing flyers. And people downtown told her something very
11: disturbing. Susana said,
3: they told me, she's probably being sold, that there's an organized group downtown that's taking them. It's not just my daughter, Susana told me.
11: It's more. More girls are missing.
3: A friend who worked at a fabric store downtown reported seeing Lupita cradling a pair of new tennis shoes in her arms. He said he last saw Lupita rushing down Mina Street.
8: Like so many other young women before, Lupita was last seen on Mina Street. That's the central bus interchange in Juarez, which has all kinds of brothels and nightclubs nearby. After our own trip to downtown, Sandra Rodriguez, the Juarez journalist at El Diario, warned us never to go back.
9: That's where a lot of the girls were seen. For the last time,
8: we were right there. Yeah,
9: yeah. That's a very, very, very dangerous place of the city. Yeah. Oh, that's had certainly a zone where they have lookouts. Absolutely. Who's they? Los Aztecas, the gangs. That's how they control the area through intimidation.
8: Sandra also reported on the third wave of femicides. And she explained that Los Aztecas is a cross-border criminal enterprise that began life as an El Paso prison gang. They now work with the cartel to traffic drugs and control various other illegal businesses in downtown Juarez. What do you think the Aztecas lookouts are thinking when they're looking at us?
9: But you might be investigating them. I think that's their concern. Certainly, I think that they were protecting their women exploitation business. Because you couldn't go through downtown area
8: without being chased or followed. Business. This was the key word in a new line of investigation. And according to Sandra's reporting, many of the victims in the third wave of femicides were trafficked for profit. When we were last in downtown Juarez, we saw missing posters with the faces of young women who disappeared within the last few weeks. And that raised the haunting question. Was it possible those women were still alive and perhaps even in the area?
3: We are walking around downtown Juarez. You know where they went missing. There's so many people and you think, they're here somewhere. Um, yeah. Why can't, why can't we find them? I sometimes wished I was a man. And I could go into the brothels and just look for the women. I have tried.
9: You have? I have.
3: Tell me I about that. I tried
9: to get into with a friend. There were two guys in the front door. No, you cannot get into Why? You cannot. Just like that. There were two guys. I didn't see if they were armed. But I thought, what kind of things do you have inside that you have two guys protecting your door? And so they have the girls.
8: Sandra couldn't get into that brothel, but there was another location where women were allegedly being held after being abducted. It was called Hotel Verde, and it was essentially a safe house for Los Aztecas, a place where they stored weapons, sold drugs, and trafficked women. It was located near the downtown and not far from the border with El Paso. Sandra interviewed a young woman whose mother sold food to the clients at the hotel.
9: The girl that I was interviewing told me, my mother found out that they were just teenagers being exploited. And I said, why didn't your mother do something? I mean, call the police. To whom? There was a lot of militaries. The troops, federal police, municipal police, they were all consuming the girls there. There is no place to go and denounce this, you know. It was heartbreaking for me to know that these girls, when they were alive, were seen by a lot of people in downtown Juarez while the mothers were trying to look to find them. And nobody connected this to, I mean, where are you going to go to denounce this? They are there.
3: They know. If the people who are supposed to be protecting you are actually involved in the exploitation of the women, according to, This mother who was bringing food in. Yes. Yeah. Where do you turn for help? I think that was the most shocking part.
8: According to Sandra, despite the fate of women like Lupita being an open secret, the authorities failed to solve the crimes. There was a trial in 2015 and there were convictions, but at best, the jailed men were seen as low level operatives of Los Aztecas. And at worst, as yet more scapegoats. Once again, the authorities were accused of not just being incompetent, but of being complicit. And in an environment where getting away with murder is so easy, femicide has become normalized. Sandra told us that these days, another missing woman in Juarez doesn't even make the front page of the city's newspaper.
9: It became like more part of my normal life or everybody's life. But yeah, the killings keep on and the disappearances keep on happening and the problem is just worse. This is not the country where I grew up. And now we are just to the violence, to the impunity, and I'm very scared of thinking how fast you can go backwards in society.
8: While on a Nieman Fellowship at Harvard, Sandra wrote a book called La Fabrica del Crimen, the crime factory. In it, she traces a line from the permanent poverty of the maculadora workers to the murders of women to the metastasis of organized crime in the city.
9: I was trying to to explain, so to express how killing was turning into a business, you know, and I think that metaphor, the crime factory, relates to the industrial character of the city, but also the criminal industry, and trying to express that crime is obviously not just a social issue, but also is fueled by economic forces. I think it's a city with a lot of suffering. The people is completely exploited. The people doesn't make enough to live even when they work the whole day. And I think it's uh, this phase of globalization that you can see here immediately. The whole country depends on America. But in this city, you can see it like in matter of minutes, how we are connected.
8: Connected economically, but separated by a border. Sandra remembers driving at night through the Franklin Mountains in Texas and looking down into the valley at Juarez and El Paso. She could see exactly where the line between the two countries was because the Mexican side was so much more densely populated and thus brightly illuminated. The lights appeared to Sandra like a wave breaking against a wall.
9: I was looking at the border from very high. You can see the line, the border, and then a lot of lights. In my view, It was like the whole pressure of the whole rest of the continent trying to reach America and then getting stopped right at the border, which is Juarez. And I thought, this city cannot contain this much poverty or violence. I mean, all Latin America is coming. For some reason, that broke my heart. Like, this city cannot hold this, and it's going to explode. No city in the world can hold the whole pressure. This pressure turned into violence. This pressure turned into legal business. This pressure turns into very bad conditions of living for the people. I just felt that I start to cry and cry.
8: Walking around Juarez, seeing the crosses and the missing posters, the femicides can appear as a self-contained tragedy. But from a vantage point, up on high, it becomes clear how the city's position in relation to the US creates the conditions for its violence. When we come back, we look at how US financial institutions have been washing the hands of Juarez criminals by laundering cartel money through the global financial system.
2: There's no sign of identity theft slowing down. And why should it? More than $14 billion were stolen from identity theft victims last year alone. To cybercriminals, it's a success story. To the rest of us, it's a wake-up call. Your personal info is in more places now than ever. And all that exposure can make it dangerously easy to steal your identity. LifeLock by Norton makes it easy to help protect yourself by monitoring your identity and alerting you to threats you could miss on your own. If you become a victim of identity theft, a U.S.-based LifeLock restoration specialist will be dedicated to your case and work to fix it. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But LifeLock by Norton makes it easy to help protect yourself. Save up to 25% off your first year by going to LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart for 25% off.
0: During the month of April, shop the buy one, get one 50% off personal care sale happening now in the health and beauty aisles at Safeway. Shop select products like Dove Deep Moisture Gel Hand Wash, Tresemme Rich Moisture Shampoo with Vitamin E, Simple Kind to Skin Facial Cleansing Wipes, or Nexus Color Insure Conditioner Salon Hair Care, and get them buy one, get one 50% off at Safeway. Visit Safeway.com or head into your local Safeway store for more great deals in the health and beauty aisles. Digital currency is helping to form the base layer for a new global
5: commerce infrastructure. And stable coins like USDC, issued by Circle, help to bring faster payments at internet scale. From merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay global suppliers and even employees more efficiently. Visit circle.com slash podcast to learn more.
8: So there was this third wave of femicide, Monica, that involved human trafficking at the Hotel Verde and other locations. And that's something that you and Sandra both reported on. How does that relate to Alfredo Corchado and what he reported about La Linea and the cartel parties?
3: The evolution of femicide. I guess you could say that it began as a way to strengthen the bonds between organized crime Then it evolved to a kind of sick form of of celebration and sport. And then it became a means of profit. It became a business, just like everything else, the drugs and the manufacturing. This third wave of femicide involved women being sexually brutalized over the course of weeks or months, multiple times. You know, they found if we can keep them, we can, we can make some money here. I, um...
8: So ultimately, it sounds like although serial killers and even perhaps wealthy industrialists took advantage of this atmosphere of impunity in Juarez where violence against women up to and including murder was permissible, the heart of this is really organized crime
3: organized crime and, and drug trafficking is at the root of all of Mexico's problems. And until that gets resolved, nothing is going to get better. I don't care how many good-hearted American judges and attorneys come down and do training sessions, the ability to corrupt police and the judicial system is still there. And until you can get rid of that, you know, nothing is going to get better. That problem is largely out of Mexico's hands when the demand persists on the American side. And the U.S. has been more than willing to pour billions of dollars into the law enforcement side, trying to stop the drugs from coming over. I Now, it's, it's clear to me, I mean, I mean, that is an unwinnable fight. You have to address demand.
8: Demand for illegal drugs in the U.S. creates the revenue on which La Línea, Los Aztecas, the Sinaloa cartel, and the rest of Mexico's organized criminal enterprises depend. To understand more about the financial underpinnings of all this violence, we called Ed Bouliami. He's a British journalist who made his name covering the war in Bosnia in the 1990s, as well as the First and Second Gulf Wars. And He's also reported extensively from Juarez. He wrote a book called A Mexica, War Along the Borderline. And while working on it, he spent time with the likes of Diana Washington Valdez, Sandra Rodriguez, and Paolo Flores.
10: I realized actually that I first interviewed Paulo Flores 20 years ago, so it's two decades now, reporting this atrocity.
8: Uh, you know, impunity is a hallmark of those 20 years. In the course of his reporting, Ed came to view young women like Sagrario as the casualties of a type of conflict that he never encountered elsewhere.
10: I think what interested me and what has appalled me and confused me is that well, whereas Iraq and Bosnia were wars, I mean, you know, um, shells landing, cowering in cellars, columns of refugees through the dust of the stone, these are wars. And yet, if we take the, sort of, that experience into Mexico, what have we got? We've got a, a, a death toll since 2006 in Mexico, which is three times that of Bosnia. 100,000 in Bosnia, 300,000 in Mexico. We've got, perhaps most appallingly of all in its different way, a number of disappeared, vanished people, leaving families who have no, no body to bury in the limbo of disappearance. And yet we've got this situation in a country that is irresistibly wonderful, where the football league functions very well and is great to watch, where the markets are open and vibrant. It's a new kind of war in what is supposed to be peacetime. Things look normal, but they're not. It's a completely brutalized society. It has the darkest shadows, in
8: many ways, of, of one's whole career as a war correspondent. According to Ed, the root cause of this new kind of war is drug trafficking and the cartels who've profited from it.
10: I mean, there is no ring around narco-violence now. I mean, narco-violence becomes domestic violence, becomes extortion, becomes trafficking, becomes sex trafficking, becomes migrant smuggling. You know, there'll come a time, I think, when actually drugs is probably a minority interest of, of these cartels because the expansion of their business is so big within Mexico.
8: Business, there's that word again. Sandra used it to describe the exploitation of women in the third wave of femicides. But it's also the key to understanding why the war in Mexico is so amorphous. The conflict is not about political identity or national boundaries. It's about profit. And to understand the cartels, you have to think of them as commercial enterprises, for whom violence is a tool of domination.
10: Cartels are corporations. They're not opponents of our financial and economic capitalist system. They're not even pastiches of it. They're actually innovators of it. Pablo Escobar, he was doing pan-American duty-free trade long before NAFTA, or Bill Clinton had the idea, Um, cocaine. You can flood the market without a drop in price. You can sell the good stuff to bankers, politicians, lawyers, and journalists, and the shit in the ghetto to be cooked as
8: crack. I mean, it's the perfect commodity. The one problem with cocaine, the sums generated are too big to be laundered through small businesses or stored in stash houses. And that requires innovation.
10: The profits are so vast, hundreds of billions of dollars, now you can't go around Mexico spending that out of the back of a truck, no you have to bank it, you have to find a banker and a bank and a lawyer who's prepared to get that money into the system.
8: To get their profits into the legitimate economy, the cartel needed help from establishment partners. Ed became obsessed by uncovering who they were. And in 2011, he broke a story under the headline, how a big US bank laundered billions from Mexico's murderous drug gangs. The bank was Wachovia. And once again, the story began with somebody who wanted justice.
10: I got a whistleblower from inside the bank, a man, a brave man called Martin Woods, to tell me the whole story um, over seven long sessions
8: and published it. Up until 2008, Wachovia was one of the biggest banks in the US, but in the aftermath of the financial crisis, it was sold to Wells Fargo, which is now the world's fourth largest bank. Martin Woods worked at Wachovia And his job was to spot money laundering. So when Woods noticed a series of dubious transactions at currency exchanges in Mexico, he started issuing suspicious activity reports to try and stop them. But then a manager quietly advised him to, quote, develop a better understanding of Mexico. Undeterred, Woods continued to flag more suspicious transactions coming out of Mexico. But instead of heeding his warnings, the bank decided to discipline him. Wakovia claimed that Woods had exposed them to, quote, potential regulatory jeopardy and, quote, large fines.
10: Wachovia had been moving an inestimable amount of money that actually belonged directly and was provably flowing from the Sinaloa cartel. The mind-boggling sum of $372 billion. I mean, that's the GDP of a nation in some parts of the world.
8: Criminal proceedings in the U.S. were eventually brought against Wachovia for failing to, quote, maintain an effective anti-money laundering program. The federal prosecutor argued that, quote, Wachovia's blatant disregard for our banking laws gave international cocaine cartels a virtual carte blanche to finance their operations. In other words, Wachovia was more interested in its own profits than preventing organized crime from entering the banking system. They ultimately settled out of court for $160 million, a tiny fraction of the laundered sums. The amount was paid by the new parent bank, Wells Fargo, who'd recently been bailed out by US taxpayers.
10: Now, the reason we can talk about this without fear of the Wells Fargo legal department is because Wachovia got caught, admitted it, and settled out of court. Too big to fail, too big to jail for sure.
8: Ed reports that as Wachovia was being investigated, another bank, HSBC, stepped in and filled the void to launder money for the Sinaloa cartel.
10: With HSBC, it's even more extraordinary because the narcos were actually going to branches of HSBC in Mexico with boxes specially made to fit through the teller's windows, filled with hundreds of dollars in cash, be given a receipt for the amount without the teller actually opening the box to look what was inside. Um, And yet, we didn't know anything about this. The Financial Times covered the settlement out of court with the following line. Mexico was becoming a compliance nightmare for HSBC full stop. Yo, all these little dark people uh, abusing our, our good bank. Once again, no one goes to jail. No one's even prosecuted or charged. A few apologies,
8: rap on the knuckle again. Not all of the media was as forgiving. The New York Times described HSBC as, quote, too big to indict, and reported that the Justice Department decided against prosecution because they were worried about, quote, destabilizing the global financial system.
10: I've tried to make it my business to report to the best of my ability on the impunity in our system, whereby the blood money, the fat cats, basically face absolutely no sanction whatsoever for taking these vast profits and swilling them around the so-called legal economy. Whoever paid Sagario Flores' killer to do what they did to her is missing in action so far as the justice system is concerned, as is HSBC. But there is a line, there is a direct line from that atrocity right up to the boardrooms of Wall Street. In the game of join the dots, there's only two dots
8: to join. The drug cartels exist to make money, and they spend that money corrupting officials and creating a reign of terror in Mexico largely in order to make more money, including from trafficking young women. And according to Ed, one of the ways to prevent this from happening would be to aggressively prosecute international money laundering.
10: I'm pretty sure that peace is better than war, and I'm pretty sure that you could actually do something to abate this appalling new kind of war if you simply throttled the money if you actually just made it not lucrative or impossible to bank this money. And as my whistleblower, Martin Woods,
8: said from Wachovia, if you don't get that, you're missing the story. The United States Justice Department effectively chose to ignore that part of the story because they were worried it could trigger another financial crisis. Meanwhile, Martin Woods, the whistleblower, says that it was impossible for him to get a job at another bank after exposing the money laundering activity at Wakovia: And it is these figures who speak out in pursuit of justice who motivate Ed's work.:
10: War journalism is, a, is quite a weird profession. Some people report conflict because deep down, they quite like it, because it gives them a bit of a bit of a buzz. I'm the opposite to that. I get terrified, I have PTSD, I hate it. I have a sort of a shortcoming whereby when I'm reporting something, I try to think myself into it. I, I can't just write down uh, an account of what was done to Paula Floris's daughter without trying to imagine what it must have been like to to be her in that room with those people, you know, who have eyes, who had faces, who she could see presumably the blades they were about to apply and then apply to her body. I mean, it's not a very psychologically beneficial thing to do, but I think it's professionally necessary. But what you get is the addiction to the people who are against it, because it's a humbling thing. Being with the soldiers in Bosnia, the guerrillas who were trying to oppose the genocide, was itself uplifting and humbling. Being with the mothers of the women to whom this was done leaves you... Oddly enriched, in a way. I mean, it's the last line of Samuel Coleridge's Ancient Mariner. A sadder and a wiser man, he woke the morrow morn. That is what one should aim to be as a a combat journalist. Sadder and wiser. And your job is to make other people sadder and wiser.
8: The whistleblowers, the truth-seekers, the mothers... Painting a cross or defending a scapegoated bus driver, or even calling out non-compliance with money laundering regulation, any of these actions can cost you anything from your livelihood to your life. And none of them is sufficient to produce the kind of systemic change required to stop femicide. But that doesn't diminish the importance of bearing witness, of making the invisible visible, from the pocket of your jeans to the bank card in that pocket. As the FBI agent Frank Evans put it best, you can kill me, but you can't eat me. When we come back, Monica returns to Juarez for a final conversation with Paula Flores about Sagrario's legacy and the price of activism.
0: During the month of April, shop the buy one, get one 50% off personal care sale happening now in the health and beauty aisles at Safeway. Shop select products like Dove Deep Moisture Gel Hand Wash, Tresemme Rich Moisture Shampoo with Vitamin E, Simple Kind to Skin Facial Cleansing Wipes, or Nexus Color Insure Conditioner Salon Hair Care and get them buy one, get one 50% off at Safeway. Visit Safeway.com or head into your local Safeway store for more great deals in the health and beauty aisles. What is Circle? First
5: of all, it's a beautiful shape. It's consistent. A community. It's meant to be inclusive. The globe. At Circle, we build USDC, a digital dollar that's actually dollar-backed, one-to-one. We're building a future where money will travel at the speed of the internet for fractions of a penny, and no one will think about it because it will just be the way we work. Circle's the place where crypto meets stability, where local businesses meet global customers, and the U.S. dollar meets USDC. Visit circle.com slash podcast.
11: Hi there, I'm Dr. John White, WebMD's Chief Medical Officer and host of the Spotlight On series from our Health Discovered podcast. In this special episode, we'll hear about living a fulfilling life with chronic heart failure, a condition that doesn't have to be as scary
4: as it sounds.
3: I was outside shoveling snow and I noticed I was coughing up phlegm. Unbeknownst to me, I left a trail of blood behind me and I was one Sign Now, of course, prior to, I was excessively gaining weight. I had issues breathing, uh, sleep apnea. I had a lot of those classic signs. My legs were beginning to retain fluid, and I was having heart palpations. Uh, My heart would beat, you know, really excessively fast. And so, but ultimately, it was when that occurred that I thought something was seriously wrong.
2: Listen
11: to Health Discovered on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Before we concluded this series, I knew I had to have one last conversation with Paula. I wanted her to tell me about what happened to her husband, Jesus. Femicide is largely viewed as the realm of women. It's something that happens to women, that hurts women, and those fighting against femicide are primarily women. We focus on the pain of the mothers, but rarely do we talk about fathers. So, despite escalating drug violence, a record heat wave, and a raging pandemic, I traveled to Juarez again. But before we began, I asked Paula if she was ready to have the conversation. Entonces, um, I knew it wouldn't si be an easy one. A tener esta pues sí, sí. Okay. I started by asking Paula to tell me how she met her husband, Well, I
7: was 18. I met him in a farming village near the little town where I lived. My sister took me. She asked me to go with her to a dance. We went walking. It was two hours on foot. So that's when I met him. From El Salto to his village, we walked together talking, and he told me that he wanted me to dance with him at the dance. In fact, that night, I only danced with him. So, from there, he started to fall in love, and we only saw each other for a short time. I knew him for less than a month when I married him.
3: Paula was just 18, and Jesus was 25. He visited her at home twice, and on the third visit, he proposed. Paula accepted, packed a few things, and left with him that same day. It was sudden, but... Paula was living with an abusive stepfather and saw it as a potential escape. I think these
7: things are predestined, you know. My stepfather, he was very harsh with us.
3: He wouldn't let me go out. He would hit me a lot. Jesus also came from an abusive household, and together he and Paula formed the kind of loving family they'd yearned for. Chuy, their only son, was their firstborn. Then they had six daughters, Guille, Juana, Sagrario, Lupe, Claudia, and Alicia.
11: From the moment I met Jesus,
7: I felt protected. He would take care of me. He was always worrying about me. Even in the street, he wouldn't let me walk on the traffic side of the sidewalk. He was a really responsible man. An exemplary father for my children. He never hit them. To this day, now that they're all grown, they still have fond memories of him.
3: In their home state of Durango, Jesus worked as a lumberjack, disappearing for days at a time to the nearby mountains. Paula would send him off with a batch of homemade tortillas. The family was poor. Guille, the oldest sister, recalls erasing her notebooks at the end of a school year so she could reuse them the following year. In Juarez, Jesus saw an opportunity to make a better life for his family. He went to work at the factory alongside his children. And then, two years after their arrival, Sagrario disappeared.
7: Well, when our daughter went missing, he went looking for her, along with the rest of the family, from the very first night. I think as the head of the family, as the father of our daughters, he showed that he was going to find her.
3: He would say, I promise you that we're going to find our daughter. But Jesus could not keep his promise. Instead, 14 days later, He walked into the Juarez Morgue to claim what authorities said was his daughter's lifeless body. As soon as the family's search for Sagrario ended, their search for justice began, this time with Paula in the lead. Jesús stuck with her, following alongside when she broke into the attorney general's meeting. He marched with her in protests, combed the desert looking for remains, and painted crosses on lampposts.
7: I would say to him, let's go, dear, and he would never say no. He would always say, let's go. Even though I was the one who always talked, he would never speak up. And one day he told me, he said, I don't talk, I don't say anything because it's enough to hear you speak, he said. I feel very shaky, I feel bad, I can't talk.
3: Although mostly silent, Jesus was one of the few fathers at the front lines. Most have to continue working to support their families. During the fight for justice for Sagrario, Jesus started getting harassed in his own neighborhood. He was even beaten by a couple strangers on his way back home from a hamburger stand.
7: When he came back to the truck, there were three men waiting for him. They were dressed normally in jeans and t-shirts. He told me, they started asking me for money. He told them, I don't have anything. So they beat him up pretty badly. It turns out they didn't rob him of anything. Not his watch, not the little money he had, nothing. The only thing he lost was an address book, a small one he fit in his pocket. And there he had our home telephone number. He had telephone numbers of other activists. After that, I started getting calls at night to our home phone. Men started making those calls to say they needed sex
3: services. The activism, the harassment, the grief, it all took its toll on the entire family. Jesus began drinking more than usual, and neighbors warned Paula that he was having an affair. Jesus had told Paula that a woman, a neighbor, had been provoking him.
7: He always complained to me. He would
3: curse. I've fucking had it with her. Wherever I go, she finds me. Paula says this went on for years. Jesus swore on his children that he remained loyal to Paula. One day, I asked him to take me shopping downtown. He said, sure, let me just
7: go visit with the tailor first. So he got in the shower, and in the meanwhile, I ironed his clothes. And When he got out of the shower, he came to me and held me. He told me he loved me very much, and he told me he wanted to take my breath with him. My mouth hurt. He kissed me so much. And he kept telling me, I want to take your breath with me. I didn't understand what he meant. After that, he said goodbye. He stood at the door and turned toward me. And I told him, my eyes that watch you leave, when will they see you return?
3: I
11: don't know why I said that. And then he left.
3: Paula got into the shower herself and got ready to go out. Then, at two o'clock, the phone rang. It was Jesus. And I thought it was
7: strange because he was supposed to be on his way back home, right? So I answered the phone and asked, what's up? And he said, no, honey, I just want to ask you to ask God that you forgive me. Forgive me, he said. I love you so much, so much. And then he said... It's better this way. And I said, but where are you? And he said,
11: it's better this way.
7: And that's it. He said, I love you, and then hung up. Oh, and he told me, the truck is parked in front of the tailor's shop.
11: It was drizzling. To us,
7: when it rains, it was very sad, because it was raining when Sagradio disappeared. So we went to the truck, and I told my son, Chuy, look, see what he's left us. And yes, he left us a letter in the glove compartment.
11: With these words,
7: I ask your forgiveness and bid you farewell. I carry you all in my heart. And Paula, I take your breath with me. Have faith that you will persevere. Do it for our family. That's my final wish. Don't deny me of it. If God doesn't forgive my bad actions, I hope you will. I can't continue writing. I'm shaking all over. I left you money in the piggy bank. Use it, for God's sake, to finish your home.
11: That's what it's for.
7: Goodbye,
3: my love.
11: The
3: newspaper reported a man and a woman had been discovered shot to death in a cardboard shack in Lomas de Poleo. They were both lying on a twin mattress, a pistol resting between them. The man was Jesus. The woman was the neighbor with whom he was supposedly having an affair. Police ruled the incident a murder-suicide. Ya yo lo único que quería era ya no vivir.
7: The only thing I wanted was not to live anymore. I would think of my daughters, that they were grown, that they didn't need me anymore, that I had done my part. And besides, he and I made a pact that whoever died first would come for the other one. And I would admonish him, you didn't keep your promise because I'm still here. I wanted to kill myself. I would grab the car, and sometimes I would drive in a zigzag. I would get on the busiest streets of Juarez.
11: These
7: were five-lane streets, and I would say to him, you are my pilot. I was your pilot many times. I was always at your side. Well, now you're my pilot. You will determine how all this will end.
3: The sudden loss of her husband, her constant companion, broke Paula. As with her daughter Sagrario, she was never fully satisfied with the police investigation into Jesus' death. Still, Paula told me she felt muzzled by the possibility that Jesus had committed a femicide. How could she continue to show her face in meetings and marches to protest that very crime? It felt like the ultimate hypocrisy. Later, Paula remembered something Jesus had told her not long before his death. He would
7: tell me that I was a badass woman. That's how he would say it. He would always tell me, you're a badass woman, you can handle it. The day I'm no longer here, you can do it. And in the letter, he told me the same thing, that I could do it, that I could keep going. I've always continued to give interviews, offering my testimonials, because I want to keep denouncing what happened to my daughter. I'll say too that when we're no longer here, she'll live on in, say, a documentary, a book, and that's where the memory of Sagrario will remain. But I want to keep denouncing that her case is not yet resolved, that girls continue to disappear. I want to keep going, but it's true that it takes its toll.
8: There's something so heartbreaking about Jesus' story, Monica. The way he stands by Paula and supports her in her acts of bearing witness, but can't take it himself, and in the end, seems to be involved in the murder of yet another woman in Juarez. I know you hesitate to even bring this story up with Paula, but why did you feel it was important?
3: Jesus' story is an extreme version of what happens to the fathers of femicide victims. Many succumb to quick and sudden deaths, whether it be from illness or cancer or a heart attack, in the case of Jesus, by his own hand. The newspaper report says he had a gunshot wound through his chest, but I read a gunshot wound through his heart, almost as if he was shooting himself in the heart because he couldn't take the pain that he carried there. Jesus, he wanted to feel like the strong one,
7: you know, the man of the family with whom we felt safe, so he kept all his feelings trapped inside. We never talked about it because for all of us the main focus was to keep demanding justice for Sagrario and the rest was pushed aside. We didn't even sit down to eat as a family anymore. Life is passing me by, we're all getting sick, our children too. And where is the justice? That's when they say to me, well, what have you gained from all this, Mom? Nothing. We've lost Sagrario, we've lost our dad. And yet, I never quit. I wish someday to get out of here, for all of us to leave and never hear about any of it again. And I wish there would be a day just for me, a day without femicides.
8: It's heartbreaking to see how Paula's strength drives her on and on, and at the same time, how the act of protests itself can create more trauma for the family. But her strength is remarkable, and I'm wondering how you make sense of it all.
3: I guess it's your typical David and Goliath story, only in this this case, you know, David has not slayed the giant. The giant lumbers on, and Paula is simply trying to get by day by day, and she's got her daughters. I mean, the one thing that I do take heart from is after Paula and I did the interview, I sat and I visited with her for just a little bit longer. She opened the door to her bedroom, and the minute she does that, people start flowing in, including her two daughters and a grandson, and they all ended up on her king-size bed in, in her bedroom, like... <laughs> the grandson is on his phone and like Juana and Guille they're lying there and chatting and laughing and Paula comes in what do you all want for lunch what are we gonna what are we gonna make for lunch and there's a softness there not everyone has a family that they get along with that they feel so at home and cozy with that they can just walk into their mother's bedroom and sprawl on her bed almost as if they were little children. I'm certain they all draw strength from each other, but I hope it's the last interview I do with Paula about the tragedies in her life. I don't hope it's the last time I see her or the last time I talk to her, but I do hope it's the last time I ask her to recount the tragedies and trauma in her life. She's done that enough, and I think, I think she needs a rest.
8: And what about you, Monica?
3: Well, when you first start out as a journalist and you're young and fresh and optimistic that if you just tell the story, something will change. And then you get to the point where where I am, where you report the same thing over and over. Not only does it keep happening, it gets worse and there is not much change. Um, And then you wonder, well, what is it for? I'm just going to leave it all behind. I'm just going to walk away. Like I said at the beginning of this podcast, but then you realize, no, no, you just always have to fight. It doesn't mean that you're going to win, but if you don't fight, then all is lost. When you make a little progress, there's going to be pushback and you just have to keep going. And maybe you do need to step away for a spell to collect yourself and heal and gather strength again. And once you do, then you get back out there.
8: I was thinking about that word again, metido. Once this story touches you, it never lets you go. Last night, I dreamt that I was stuck in Juarez, being watched, hunted. But of course, I woke up in the safety of my bed. Paula and generations of her family will never wake up from the nightmare of Sagrario's murder. But they'll keep going. The story of the Flores family is just one of hundreds like them in Juarez. And today, Juarez itself is just one city among many where institutions have collapsed in the face of money and power, and violence against the most vulnerable prevails. But there is sadness and wisdom to be gleaned from all of this. Wisdom, at the very least, to recognize one another's humanity. I'm Osvalosim.
3: And I'm Monica Ortiz Uribe. Thanks for listening. Forgotten, the women of Juarez, is co-hosted by me, Monica Ortiz Uribe.
8: And me, Oswald Oshin. Forgotten is executive produced by me and Mangesh Hatikida. Our producers are Julian Weller and Katrina Norval. Sound editing by Julian Weller, Jacopo Penzo, Aaron Kaufman, and Michelle Lanz. Lucas Riley is our story editor. Caitlin Thompson is our consulting producer. Production support from Emily Marinoff and Aaron Kaufman. Recording assistance this episode from Phil Bodger. Music by Leonardo Heblum and Jacobo Lieberman. Additional music by Aaron Kaufman. Carla Tassara is the voice actor for Paula Flores. Special thanks to Ryan Martz.
3: And to Cynthia Bejerano and Maria Socorro Buenca for their support to this series. Thanks also to the producers of the documentary, La Carta. This podcast is dedicated to all the women lost to senseless violence in Juarez and all around the world. Esta serie se dedica a todas las mujeres que han sufrido bajo la violencia. Ni una más.
4: Hello, beautiful. I'm Amy Arit, founder of Madison Reed, a hair color company I named after my daughter. I started Madison Reed to give you the most gorgeous hair color made with ingredients you could feel good about. Are you tired of drugstore hair color? You deserve better. Spring is here and the forecast calls for your best hair color ever. Upgrade to salon quality hair color that nourishes and improves the condition of your hair without any harsh odors. It's easily done at home and we deliver it to your door. Plus our hair color matching technology makes picking the right color easy, fast and accurate. For a limited time, new clients get 15% off plus free shipping on your first online order. Visit madison readcom forward slash promo. Take our online color quiz to find your perfect shade. That's madison-reed.com forward slash promo. Try it, love it. That's the beauty of Madison Reed. Is there anything better than a great night's
1: sleep? Lisa's award-winning mattresses are here to make that a reality. Rated the New York Times top pick four years running, Lisa offers free shipping and a risk-free 100-night trial. And right now, you can save up to $700 on select mattresses, plus two free pillows. It's time to get the sleep you deserve with Lisa. Exclusion Supply. Visit Lisa.com for more details. That's L-E-E-S-A dot Imagine what your dog would tell you if they could talk more treats with canine health check your dog's genes can speak to you canine health check screens for over 250 genetic diseases and more just swab send the sample and wait two weeks or less for results we offer genetic screening for dogs that has been developed by expertly trained veterinarians and phd geneticists so you can trust that your results are of the highest quality and accuracy visit caninehealthcheck.com and get 30 percent off with code iheart Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ocean by H10 Hotels and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.
5: Live Nation presents Concert Week.